You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These opening words from the Declaration of Independence are rightfully associated with the author of this document and one of the primary architects of America, Thomas Jefferson. But the Declaration, of course, was not the only significant work to flow from Jefferson's pen, even if it is the most famous. Another document of interest to students of Jefferson is what's become known as the Jefferson Bible, never intended to be a public work, but the private meditations of what one historian has called a practical pluralist. Jefferson's Bible is the work of cutting and pasting the Gospels to find what is the true philosophy of Jesus. That Jefferson spent years constructing this document says something about the soul of the man. Well, how are we to understand Jefferson's religion? What lasting impact did the Anglicanism of his youth have on his adult life? In what sense, if at all, can Jefferson be considered Christian? Well, thankfully, there is a forthcoming biography of Thomas Jefferson that asks these important questions. Here's how the author states it as he considers others who have tried to interpret Jefferson. Yet I, too, am trying to untangle the thicket of Jefferson's moral, philosophical, and theological commitments in the context of his time, not ours. The resulting picture is hardly one of a secularist hero or, even less so, of a predecessor of the Christian right. Instead, as Jefferson put it, he was a sect unto himself. Well, when you quote from a book, it's always nice to have the author on your podcast to talk about it. That's why we're thrilled to welcome Thomas Kidd to the program. Now, Dr. Kidd, most of you know, is professor of history at Baylor University and a professor of church history at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is also the author of too many books to list, but among them, some of my favorites include God of Liberty, A Religious History of the American Revolution, George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father, Who is an Evangelical, The History of a Movement in Crisis, and the forthcoming, in fact, May 10th, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Well, Tommy, welcome to Bead. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I thought I'd jump right in. Our time is all too brief with a question that gets right at the the heart of why you wrote the book. So if I could set it up this way, in other words, if I could adapt a phrase from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12.12, of making many books on Jefferson, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So why another biography of Jefferson? What drew you to him? And what unique contribution does your book make to the literature? 
Thanks. Yeah. I mean, there, there's ton of books on, on Jefferson. Um, and, you know, there, there are definitely ones that are sort of blow by blow political history of, of Jefferson. And, and that's not what this book is for sure. Um, I, I think of what I'm doing as a kind of moral biography of Jefferson. I mean, I'm definitely interested in his religious and theological and ethical views, but it's more than that. I'm, I'm, I'm also trying to look at his kind of moral and ethical uh, universe, his, his way of living. And in some ways, I'm, I'm engaging with maybe the most pressing question about Jefferson, which is that he's the author of the, of the Declaration, as you mentioned, and, and those resonating words from the Declaration about our God-given equality, and equality specifically by a common creation by God. Um, and yet he owned hundreds of people as slaves. And, uh, you know, scholars are pretty much in agreement now that he also had a longstanding uh, sexual relationship with one of his slaves, Sally Hemings. Um, and so a lot of Americans look at him and, and just they don't get it. What What's going on? What And, and, and I think the default answer to that these days is just hypocrisy. And I, I mean, I think that that is, that's a valid judgment on, on Jefferson to some extent, but historically it's, it's more complicated. Um, and, and, you know, if he was living today, it would be, you know, easy to dismiss him as just a mere hypocrite. And that would be all about all you would need to say. But I think that there's more going on with the conflicting, uh, worldviews, I guess you could say, that that are kind of rattling around in Jefferson's moral and theological universe. Certainly Christianity is part of that. Anglicanism, as you mentioned, um, the Enlightenment, um, you, you know, and, and enlightened trends and in, in, uh, views of theology and, and ethics. Uh, his identity as a gentleman of colonial Virginia and revolutionary Virginia, all those, I think, put uh, demands on his moral and ethical life, and and their demands that I think he never completely uh, sorted out for himself. And is that one of the most compelling things to you? Because I I agree, you come to a a character like Jefferson, and you I think you call him in your book these dissonant beliefs and practices. I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, that must have been just a draw in and of itself. How do I make sense of this or untangle this thicket, as you say? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't mean to, you know, blame or chastise him really. I mean, for not getting all these things sorted out, it's more just to observe <laughs> that, you know, here's a man who who's titanically brilliant. He's one of the greatest writers in world political history. I mean, so, so that it's not to denigrate those accomplishments, but it is to observe that he has these kind of competing impulses of gentility and Anglican Christianity of his childhood and enlightenment uh, rationality, as he would call it, um, and the the Unitarian convictions of his late adulthood, and uh, there, there's a lot going on there, and it, it it really does not lead to a kind of full consistency in his in his moral uh, and ethical life. And that is very much reflected in aspects of his life. This slavery aspect is, is the best known. Um, but uh, one of the things I was surprised about in doing the biography is that even though Jefferson, he has these Republican, smaller Republican 
convictions about personal frugality and discipline and all this. And yet he lives a life that is is deeply chaotically undisciplined in terms of his financial situation. And in today's money, he dies with about $2.6 million in personal debt. Um, and, and so you say, well, why didn't he free his slaves? <laughs> well, mm-hmm. that that's maybe the number one answer is that he's just financially a disaster. And he, and he feels terrible about it, but he, he sort of can't escape it, especially when late in life he co-signs a loan with uh, one of his gentleman friends in Virginia, which he feels obligated to do by the code of gentility. Uh, but then the man defaults on the loan and, and Jefferson is stuck with responsibility for it. You make much, Tommy, in your biography about that code of gentility. And I wonder, if, at least in my personal studies of Jefferson, that's been underestimated, I think, in some of the biographies I've read. That's something you add there. And I, I've had to really rethink how much that probably influenced everything in in Jefferson's life. Well, well. Yeah. And when you think about uh, the the things that I'm criticizing Jefferson or, you know, observing problems in his in his ethical life, um, there, there's few of them that are unique to Jefferson. I mean, and, and so uh, when you look at the economy of colonial revolutionary Virginia, it's built on a mountain of debts. I mean, that, that are just Byzantine and difficult to trace out who owes what to who. Uh, and, and, and Jefferson, I mean, he's an extreme case um, because of the cosine loan, uh, because of his long diplomatic career. But I, I get the sense that a lot of what he, he does in terms of his debt, I mean, he talks constantly about this crushing burden of debt that he's under. Um, but he never seems to feel uh, that he can even give himself permission to stop spending um, and it's mostly, uh, I mean, he overspends on books, which I won't, I will not criticize him for. <laughs> yeah, we'll give him a pass. There. <laughs> we'll give him a pass on that. But uh, a lot of it is on wine uh, and entertaining. Um, there, there are years for him as president where the household budget for wine is more than what he pays to the household staff of, of the White House. Um, it, 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 the, the, the amount that he spends on hosting in, in Paris, in Washington, is it, just astounding. But he never seems to be able to get to the point where he thinks, maybe I don't have to do as much. Um, and, I think he and, sees that as required of him, he, not only because of that code of gentility, but now the presidency. The presidency and his, uh, his just obsession, like a lot of gentlemen at that time, with your public reputation. And, and he, I think he, at the end of the day, he would rather be in that, in that debt than have anyone question whether he's, you know, the most generous man in Washington or not. I wanted to ask about his Anglicanism because you brought that up, Tommy. And I, I, I know he grew up in an Anglican home and you draw out, uh, I mean, two books were key to his Anglicanism, the Bible, and then this book of common prayer. And we don't have to go into all that, but those were part of his upbringing. Right. And so he was given this this Judeo-Christian worldview. I mean, this in, in the form of Anglicanism. And I was just curious, how, how much did that influence his adult life as you traced it out? Uh, did he always consider Anglicanism his ecclesiological home or did and maybe I just missed it. Did he ever forsake that entirely in terms of language? I think doctrinally he did. 
Right. Yeah, sure. He he did uh, go, you know, well beyond the bounds of Orthodox Anglicanism and his, yeah. and his personal theology. Um, but no, he, he never he never repudiated the Anglican tradition and was, you know, I mean, if, if he was going to uh, go to church, I think it, it would be to a, an Anglican church for his whole life, although he had interactions with uh, a surprising range of denominations um, and not just in the cause of religious liberty, which is, accounts for a lot of his connection with Baptists. But uh, he, he's close personal friends with, uh, for instance, an evangelical pastor named Charles Clay, uh, who's a, a pastor of what's called the Calvinistic Reformed Church in Charlottesville. Um, and, and they and uh, Clay later leaves the ministry and gets into politics, but uh, they stay friends and neighbors through most of both of their lives. In fact, it's probably the pastor that he knows the best for the longest amount of time in, in his life. It's, it's, it's striking, I think, to see him be close personal friends with uh, 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 several evangelicals, but including, most importantly, Charles Clay. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the, his Anglicanism, we underestimate what deep of an imprint that puts on his mind um, and his understanding about just basic things like the created order. Um, I don't think there's any reason to doubt Jefferson's already becoming uh, skeptical about a lot of basic Christian doctrine uh, about the resurrection and about the divinity of Christ and, and so forth. But when he says all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator, I think he totally means that. I, th I think he sees the world that he's living in as a created world. Um, and and I, don't, I don't think he ever really seriously doubts that. And in that sense, he he's pretty Darwinian. Um, I mean, he... he he really can't even get around to questioning a, a created order. And I think it's really foundational to his political thought. You also see, I mean, the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer shape a lot of his rhetoric. Um, and, and, and phrases from the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer uh, and other Christian sources will, will just pop out at kind of unexpected moments. They gave you know, him a language, right? It, this is, a, this is his language of... It did. How he sees the world. And it's the language of the people he's speaking to as well. And, and so it's the coin of the realm. I, I mean, I wouldn't say that he knows the Bible as well as Ben Franklin knows it, but that's a pretty high standard. I mean, Franklin has a lot of King James Bible memorized because of his Puritan upbringing. But but uh, but Jefferson knows the Bible uh, very well. And and as an as an adult, um you know, he reads the Bible, he reads uh, the New Testament and the Septuagint in Greek uh, for personal edification. He doesn't know Hebrew. Uh, and, and John Adams gets on his case about that. He says, you know, an educated person really should know Hebrew. And, and, and Jefferson basically tells him to shove it. But but uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> just uh, added it, to their disagreement. Yeah, th th there is, were many. This is the sort of thing they they talk about in their in their retirement. But uh, anyway, uh, he reads the Bible. He knows the Bible very well. He knows the Christian tradition. Uh, and so, you know, you, you you tend to think of Jefferson's skepticism, which is right. But then I think there's a kind of underlying foundational understanding of Christianity, Bible, Christian worldview. Well, he knew enough of the Bible to know what he wanted to cut out. Well, that's right. right. That's right. I mean, <laughs> it, it, I mean, literally a lot of, you know, these new atheists today and stuff, they, they think they're critics, of, but they don't know anything about Christianity. They don't know the Bible. Right. Jefferson knew it. And, and that mm -hmm. allowed him 
to do not just an English language edition of the Gospels, but but a four language English, French, uh, and Greek and Latin, uh, and, and it, you know parallel columns uh, of these passages from the Gospels. And so, somebody who's going to do that, they have to know at least the Gospels very very well. Yeah. So, is it accurate to call him a deist, though? I mean, we'd put him in that you know religious category. I I tend to think that. It's more accurate to call Franklin a deist because Franklin called himself a deist. Um, and, and so, you know, that's a pretty good place to start with Franklin is he called yeah. himself a deist in his autobiography. Jefferson didn't really call himself a deist. I mean, and, and he, he didn't talk about deism very much. Um, so I, I, I think probably as a young man that that's getting pretty close to what he was, and, and I think he was more radically skeptical as a young man. And then in, uh, in his later adulthood, he starts reading key Unitarian texts, especially by Joseph Priestley. And, and so my argument is that by 1802, he is very firmly philosophically a Unitarian. And, and at that point, I mean, he's a providentialist. He believes in the superiority of Jesus's ethical teachings. And so I, I think at that point, deist is probably not as accurate to call him. So, of course, it's Unitarianism, though, is somewhat eclectic because, uh, I mean, Priestley would believe in the resurrection of Christ, uh, the inspiration of Scripture, which I, I gather that... Uh, uh, Jefferson does not. Yeah, that's uh, right. That's right. And, and I mean, he and so, Priestley are are not on the same page about about some of those issues. I, and I don't think Jefferson would say that Jesus is speaking from divine authority or, or revelation, or even revelation, like you said, that Priestley thought. But I mean, he also thinks that there's something special in all world history about Jesus. Um, but but no, he definitely doesn't believe in, in the inspiration of Scripture. I mean, he even says that some of what G Jesus himself taught uh, was wrong, which <laughs> that's that that's pretty extreme for for the time. But but he he still, I think, by eighteen o two would set aside Jesus's moral teachings as he says the most sublime uh, in in all of world history, but especially above the ancients. Uh, the Greek, the pagan Greeks and, and Romans and so forth, where I, he would not have said that, I think, 10 or 15 years earlier. A great moral philosopher. Yeah, that's that's how I've always read yeah, him. Great moral uh, philosopher. Influenced by the Enlightenment. I mean, he's kind of an Enlightenment philosopher. Do you think his movement towards Unitarianism is um, as exacerbated or uh, helped by the fact that Priestley comes to America? Uh, did he did he meet Priestley when he comes to Philly, Philadelphia? Uh, did he ever go to Priestley's home up in Northumberland? Yeah, I don't. I mean, they they, they definitely were active in correspondence, and that and that really. I mean, there is definitely a burst of activity once Priestley comes to America. It's fairly short lived. Um, he he has a longer standing uh, correspondence with Richard Price, the Unitarian uh, leader. In England, but but um, Priestley, I, I definitely think has about a three-year sort of burst of influence on Jefferson's 
uh, mind and, and ethical philosophy and sort of resolves a question that Jefferson has had for all those years about in what sense can one rationally be a Christian? And and I think I think Priestley, even though he doesn't take all of what Priestley says, I think he he Priestley convinces him that of the superiority of Jesus's ethical teachings, and then Priestley dies. So I mean, their their one on one relationship is never very close, but the intellectual impact is enormous. Yeah. The other thing I was um, wanted to to talk a little bit about was the the kind of relationship, at least from the Baptist point of view, of people like John Leland, who have great admiration for Jefferson. Um, you may not be aware of, or you may be aware of, there's a letter of Samuel Hopkins, the uh, new divinity minister, uh, around the time of the election of Jefferson uh, to the presidency. He writes to John Ryland Jr. in England. He's absolutely horrified. Um, and he uses language that Ryland himself, uh, even though he's living obviously in, in a monarchy, he, he rebukes uh, Hopkins. He says, I, I, I'm ashamed that you've used this language of your president. Um, and it's very evident that um, Jefferson is absolutely, uh, sorry, um, uh, Hopkins is absolutely horrified that such an infidel uh, in his mind has occupied the White House or what would become the White House, the presidency. Um, and yet Leland, uh, on the other extent, a Baptist, has, you know, he's got very positive uh, uh, feelings about, uh, about Jefferson. That range of um, kind of feeling about Jefferson, uh, uh, it was a surprise to me when I first came across this letter of, of Hopkins, um, because I would assumed, sorry, when I came across, yeah, because I assumed that most of the feeling of people like, you know, Leland the Baptist would have been very positive, but there's obviously a significant range in the Christian community uh, about uh, Jefferson. Yeah, there is, and and I think you would find you know, that there are, are Baptists in New England who are do not like Jefferson, but then there are others who, who do. Uh, it, it's obviously somewhat contingent on whether you're a Federalist or, you know, part of Jefferson's emerging Republican Party or not. Um, but with Leland, of course, as, as you all know, um, there, there's a long history there of working for religious liberty in Virginia uh, when, when Leland, uh, you know, spends... The, like later decades of the of the 1700s in in Virginia, and so they they have um, you know battle scars together of fighting mm. uh, against the establishment in in Virginia, and and I think that that breeds uh, such a deep fondness for for Jefferson uh, that Jefferson and and Madison uh, certainly spent an enormous amount of political capital. Uh, on behalf of, of groups like the Baptists to get uh, the, the, uh, the established church uh, terminated in the, in the 1780s or the, the government connection with the church. And so uh, they, they love him and they, they see what Jefferson is doing is setting the stage for, you know, the, all the Baptists want is in the persecution, let us preach the gospel and freedom and we will win the day. Um, and, and Jefferson and Madison, though they are not personally sympathetic to Baptist or evangelical theology, uh, they, they are sympathetic to the idea of get the, just get the government out of playing favorites. And, you know, OK, these Baptists may be crazy, but let them just preach what they want to preach and, and 
get the government out of, you know, persecuting them, because if, if the government persecutes the Baptists, they'll come for people like Jefferson uh, next because of his heterodox mm-hmm. theology. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, Leland is, um, I, I mean, I think we think of Leland because he is so effusive in his love for, for Jefferson. It's, it's, it's slightly embarrassing. I mean, because as as you may recall that that you know when he brings the mammoth cheese to yeah, uh, cheese. To, to to Washington, you got to tell that story. Uh, yeah, I mean, how, how big was that cheese? It, it was, uh, I think it was a half ton or something something like that. It's just twelve hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, four just feet a, wide. Enormous piece of cheese from uh, Cheshire, Massachusetts. And, and, uh, uh, as a gift from the Baptists of New England and, uh, the Baptists in, in, you know, rural New England who love, who love Jefferson. And, and, uh, so they bring it as it's like all this media coverage, they bring it on a wagon and then ship it, you know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. And, and the newspapers just love it. They're, they're going crazy with all these puns about mammoth and cheese. And, uh, and, and, and but when, when Leland brings it, he, uh, with what at Jefferson's request, speaks before Congress uh, mm-hmm. and the president and gives this extremely effusive sermon on the text, uh, Behold, one greater than Solomon is here. <laughs> you know, like, this is a little embarrassing. I, I don't, you know, kind of, effusive praise. Yeah, call behold, it now. one yes. greater than Solomon is here. And so... Um, Anyway, but but I, I mean, for Leland, you know, Leland has persecution, an experience of persecution uh, by the American governments that I think breeds that kind of effusive fondness for for Jefferson, and that may, you know I can understand that. I mean, Baptist preachers were being thrown in jail for illegal preaching on the eve of the Revolution in Virginia, and uh, you know, Madison and Jefferson just thought this is this is crazy. We, why are we doing this to people? And that that created that sort of wonderful alliance between Baptists and these, you know, deist, Unitarian, you know, rationalists. And was there any sense uh, from Jefferson, all that fine and well, but also he just didn't like the Federalists and all all the, the ridicule and how frustrated they were with Jefferson. It probably, you know, helped him all the more be friendly to the Baptists. <laughs> It did. It did. And, and, you know, he, he, he saw the Federalists as, as, you know, not mostly being Baptist or the sort of dissenting evangelical denominations. Now I will say, I mean, in in private, especially in retirement, that Jefferson could be really nasty about evangelicals uh, and, and really mocking, you know, evangelical piety and, uh, you know, talking about, you know, these henpecked husbands whose, whose, you know, wives love Jesus so much and all this sort of, I mean, just really. Example like, you give of Phyllis Wheatley, for example. Yes. You know, and, I was, and, as I was yeah. through the advanced copy. Utterly uh, contemptuous. Actually, of, yeah. I mean, uh, people like Phyllis Wheatley, the African-American evangelical poet, uh, just totally contemptuous. So, so like, you know, the, the friendship on Jefferson's side is political. Um, yeah. and, and, and so we, we shouldn't, you, you get this confused about somehow he's sympathetic to say Leland's piety. Do you think, um, reading through the section, I, I, it, there were a number of very interesting passages in the advanced copy that, uh, you sent us, uh, one had to do with, uh, uh Jefferson as a father, 
advice he was giving to his daughters really regarding sexuality, you know, make sure that what they're, they're clean um, because what disgusts men about women is if they're not clean and so on. I find that, I mean, as a father with a daughter, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't, I would never have said that personally. I mean. Yeah. And he said, if, if you allow yourself to get sunburned, he, he said, if you allow yourself to get sunburned, we won't love you as much. Yeah. I mean, it, it, but that's, that's that gentlemanly, you know, culture that he comes out of, but it's also, he tends not to, I mean, again, representative of the time, he tends not to take women seriously as kind of intellectual figures or peers or anything like that. And so, I mean, he's sweet to his daughters at other times, but boy, some of the stuff he says is just hair raising. Is that, is that material available in other biographies? I, I, I'm not a Jefferson expert, so it is. Okay. It is. I mean, that there, you know, like I said, every subject on Jefferson pretty well has been covered, but there are definitely books about Jefferson's relationships with women, uh, which are extremely complicated, especially with, you know, almost any romantic or sexual contact he had with women besides his, his wife who, who uh, died in the early 1780s. And, and, and like you say, inconsistent with some of those relationships, for example, the way he interacted with Abigail Adams, very different than how he would have spoken about other women. Yeah. He I, seemed to have such a respect for her. He did. I, I think that Abigail Adams, they, they have a lively correspondence too. And, and she's one woman who will, uh, he has several women like this, but who, who will be quite frank with him about what mm-hmm. they think about what he's doing about various topics. And Abigail Adams was pretty concerned, uh, for instance, about the arrival of Sally Hemings in Paris. I think you get a little sense that Abigail Adams can kind of see what's happening about this teenage girl, you know, pretty much by herself, coming to Paris, living in Jefferson's household. Uh, but, But Jefferson, I think Abigail Adams is also probably the woman in the world you know, if, if Martha, his, his wife had lived, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what that relationship would have been like later, but Abigail Adams, I think is the closest you have in his late adulthood of a woman that he treats as a, as an intellectual peer. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously Abigail Adams is, is a, an intellectually formidable person. That's, that's for sure. I, I, yeah, I got one last question before we go. <laughs> Do you like Jefferson? As a person, I mean, he's obviously intriguing intellectually, but I, I, you know, for as a historian, and I do a, a fair amount of biographical writing. I mean, critical for me in in writing a biography of this sort of length would be I, I like the person, whether or not I agree with him all intellectually is is an, is is obviously off to the side. But uh, after spending this amount of time with Jefferson, do, do you like him as a person? Uh, would he be a person in the, if you were in the 18th century and the opportunity to meet and develop a friendship with? Would that be something that you would want to do? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you can tell from the biography I'm conflicted about Jefferson. Uh, and that that could be even putting it a little nicely. Um, <laughs> I, I would rather hang out with Ben Franklin. Um, and I, I, you know, that's a pretty easy call. But 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 uh, yeah, I. I I find Jefferson, uh, I mean, I, I'm deeply sympathetic to parts of his political philosophy, um, I, I will say, including uh, I mean, the, the best known parts that 
I would think a lot of Americans would be at least marginally sympathetic to, but, but his agrarianism, I find congenial, um, even though it's always, you know, morally uh, problematic because of slavery. But, um, uh, I, I do think that he, uh, I, I, I was surprised at, I mean, I knew about the slavery bit and I knew about the problem with, with Sally Hemings, um, I don't think I realized quite how dissolute he was um, and, and, and just phenomenally undisciplined. Um, and, and that was, I, w- I would describe that as an unpleasant surprise in, in doing uh, the, the biography, that d- just the titanic personal debt that he, he developed. And you can just see it building. I mean, part of it, He's not a good financial manager. I mean, that's that's not a surprise. He's not a good farmer. He's, but I mean, to build the first Monticello and then tear it down and build a much bigger one, and then immediately to go into building another mansion at Poplar Forest, when he knows that he's already under crippling debt, um, I just don't get it. Well, (laughs) Tommy, related that part of it, I don't like. Good question there. I thought we could close with with a, a question. I want to quote from you again. I think it's such a, 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 a an important brief paragraph, but it surrounding our time and this day and age of historical figures being canceled. I think you give some real wisdom here and, and somewhat related to Michael's question. What do you mm-hmm. think of Jefferson and how as a historian can you write a critical biography and yet with sympathy at points? And I think I think you do both. If I read you right, um, it's definitely a critical biography, and I, I sense that almost ambivalence. Is that a fair word that you have for Jefferson? Uh, but, but you strike me yes. as being fair to him and sympathetic in some ways, given his time. So let me set it up this way, and we can close with this um, idea. So I just say in your book, uh, you help us think through this question of whether or not Jefferson and other historical figures should be canceled. And I see this when you write this paragraph. You say, quote, Time-bound, self-interested men frame the world's most enduring republic on the bedrock of slave owner Jefferson's glorious principle that all men are created equal. These paradoxes warrant sober reflection and further study. We should steer clear of the excesses of either patriotic apologetics or iconoclastic destruction. The founders, including Jefferson, were hardly pristine saints, and maybe we're not either. End quote. Uh, speak to that a little bit, Tommy. I just think that's that's a wise word for our time. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's so tough in our culture to get the balance right about the way that we view uh, flawed historical figures, which is... Uh, you know, everybody that has lived other than a certain carpenter's son from Nazareth, right? I mean, so, so I, I mean, we should be able to recognize, especially when people didn't live up to their own standards, right? I mean, and, and so Jefferson said that he knew slavery was morally abominable. Um, and, and, and yet he, probably because of his own financial access could could never do anything about it personally. Um, and politically, he did a little bit about it, but he, he people around him were constantly begging him to do more, including Christians were, were begging him to do more. So 
I mean, I think that that's fair game. It's not fair game for us to just look back and say, you should have been a person of, you know, the mores of 2022. That's not fair. I mean, that, that we, we just can't expect people to do that. But but when they're not living up to standards at their own time, you know, that that's fair game. But, uh, it, you know, we know as historians that people, if the Lord tarries 200 years from now, people will be looking back on us and saying, what was the matter with these people, you know, tolerating these moral abominations? And I could guess one or two of those things, but it, it's likely that I don't, I don't even see it because I'm like a fish in water. Um, and so we're, we're captive our, of, our, of our cultures. And so I tell my students, look, you, you just have to grapple with the fact that if you were born into a white slave-owning family in the South in 1776, you would have died a pro-slavery slave-owning person. I, and I'm sorry, but that, that's, you, know, that you wouldn't have been the one to realize it was wrong. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's true of all of us. So, I, not, you know, I mean, if people want to rename schools and all that, you know, you want to rename your school for Phyllis Wheatley other than Thomas Jefferson, I, I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I, I really like Phyllis Wheatley, so that's, that's cool with me. But it's not because this is the way that we establish our virtue. I mean, for heaven's sake, um, I, I think we'd rather just, it would be better to just sit with these you know, paradoxes and dilemmas and problems and and think about it and be chastened by it, ideally. I, I, I think that that would be the best outcome is for us to be chastened by these lessons of the past. But but we, we tend to use them, I think, to trumpet our own virtue, and that that's the wrong way to go. The author is Thomas Kidd. The book is Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. It's due out May 10th, but of course, you can pre-order it at the link in the show description. I encourage you to go do that. Tommy, again, congratulations on the book and for the important contribution it makes to Jefferson Studies. We are really grateful you joined us on the podcast. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.